This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So welcome everyone to the third and final of our three conversations with notable scientists here at Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm head of public affairs. Uh, my guest today is Sashi Bouliswar, who is the director of Berkeley Labs Institute for Globally Transformative Technologies, otherwise known as LIGHT, the acronym L-I-G-T-T. LIGHT, as you will learn, uh, has a very ambitious agenda for the developing world. So please welcome Sashi. So before describing what light actually is and its many objectives, could you just sketch out for us the scope of the problem in the developing world that we are confronting at this stage? Sure. Um, great to be here, by the way. So let me, let me do it by way of example. Uh, every year, 1.5 million children die because they drink water that is dirty, that is infested with, frankly, uh, contaminants from fecal matter. Every year, 350, 360,000 women die at childbirth. And um, guess how much food gets wasted every year? So the food that's produced for human consumption. Take a guess. A percentage? Yeah. Uh, 20%. 33%. A full one-third, which is 1.3 billion tons of food gets wasted a year. And this happens while people are starving to death. So this is waste within the developing world or waste in the developed? Develop both. Just both. Okay. Uh, and we will get into the details of that, but just to give you a sense for what types of waste. Here, it's a waste of excessive consumption, meaning we, we buy stuff that we don't consume. Uh, elsewhere, it's, it's waste because of lack of things like storage. So, so people produce fruits and vegetables, they rot. People with great difficulty produce grains, and they're stored in places that are wet. So they rot. Rats eat them. And so even as people are starving to death, a billion and more than a billion tons of food gets wasted. So these are some of the types of problems that we're dealing with. In addition to that, everything is manual. And so if you think of the, the quintessential, the image of the quintessential African farmer is a woman, often with a, with a child on her back, working 10 hours a day, manually digging, carrying water, uh, cutting the stuff, carrying it back. So uh, I could give you the whole slew of problems, but this is, these are a few examples. And as we are reminded by recent events, energy is also an issue, is exactly. it not? Exactly. Delivery of energy. Exactly. It's the lack of energy, it's the lack of infrastructure, the lack, lack of facilities, the lack of institutions to, to provide those services. Um, and it's, it's the lack of uh, capable governments to actually provide these things. So... Can Americans really understand the scope of this problem or, or really understand the kind of conditions that you're seeing when you go? And, and what, what could help us? Look, there is poverty everywhere. I, mean, I live in Oakland, and there's plenty of poverty there. There is a difference, however, between the poverty in a place where there are resources and there is a reasonably well-functioning public system versus, a poverty, versus poverty in, in a place that... Take Afghanistan, for instance, which has never been governed, governed throughout its history. We can, we, you know, particularly in the Bay Area, uh, people are very well informed. We, we travel, we, we watch stuff on, on TV, we read about things. The, there's, a dis, there's a distinction between understanding something and internalizing it. Right? So um, because we live in privilege, you know, we, I think most of us get it, but we don't live it. We do not live it, no. 
So let's get specific about light. What exactly is light, and how can it help solve some of these problems? So light is it's a new institute uh, created uh, four months back, five months back. Um, and the idea is as simple as it is challenging. We at the lab do $800 million of research a year. Now, much of it is not relevant to developing country needs, but there's a, there's a substantial portion that we believe is. Now, our initial guess is something like 20, 25% of it is. 25% of existing research here exactly. that is directly the applicable. Topics. Exactly, the topics. topics. Okay. So our job is to take that and, and tweak the last mile of that research to see if we can come out with these with breakthrough scientific, uh, scientific breakthroughs and technologies that can solve some of these problems. I'll give you an example of, of um, a technology and a problem. Take the question of food waste. So if you're, a, if you're a poor farmer living, say, 100 miles from a city, 200 miles from a city, you have to get your fruits and vegetables and your dairy and your, your meat to the city where the market is. And in the absence of, if you're a poor African farmer, you don't have a car. Right? You have to figure out a way to get it there. Often there are intermediaries who pick up the stuff and take it. But that process takes days. And in the meantime, what happens? The stuff rots. Right? So we're one, one early technology we're building is a very low-cost, solar-powered, lightweight refrigerator that can be mounted in a motorcycle or in a bicycle that can help, this, help the farmer keep the food alive for a few days. Was that something in development here already? It's uh, the, the early stages of this were in development in, in different parts of the country, and, and there's some people affiliated with the lab who worked on it. And it's actually a fascinating technology. When uh, computer laptops were getting skinnier, you had uh, companies like Apple and Dell go to Intel and say, look, your CPUs are producing the heat. Um, we, can't, we don't have room for fans on these laptops. Make the heat go away. We don't care how you do it. Make it go away. Um, and so they used a really interesting technology, thermoelectric chips, which essentially transport heat from point A to point B, and by the way, produce electricity in the process. And um, using that, some scientists who, had, who were funded by ARPA-E, which, as many of you know, is, is, uh, really is, is part of the, related to the Department of Energy, um, they built a refrigerator, which happens to be sitting here, um, that... Um, that sells for, it's in the market right now, sells for something like $60, $65 in India. A quarter million of these have sold already. Right? And, uh, but it, there's still lots of problems with it. So we're taking that, in fact, uh, Jonathan Slack, who's here with us, is, is, is uh, working on the project to, to take that concept and make it so that it actually fits on a motorcycle, that it, that it can uh, run off of solar. So this, this device that you have here. So, so this device here, let me, it's, it's incredibly light. This is a refrigerator, believe it or not, right? Have you ever seen a refrigerator this light? Um, it's, it, it plugs in, and, you know, it's, it's not the greatest, but for 65 bucks, you know, I'm willing to live with something that, that reasonably functions. Um, and 25% of these are already solar-powered, but we're aiming for make them 100%. No, sorry, so this, this model has been selling for a couple of years. This happens to be plug-in, okay. but it works on solar just okay. easily. So what we're doing is taking this basic notion with significant improvements, including a much better thermoelectric chip, uh, much better insulation, and, and, um, and much better storage of the, of, of the heat, and I'll explain why that's important. So... Leave aside the agricultural refrigerator for a moment, and, and let's talk about a slightly different problem. Vaccines. The, the basic vaccines, uh, there are six or eight of them, they have to always, always be between two degrees centigrade and eight degrees centigrade. If it's colder than that or hotter than that, they're not useful anymore. These vaccines are made typically in labs in developed countries or, or in some developed countries like India, or developing countries like India. And they're, as soon as they're made, they're refrigerated and kept within that temperature range. When it's transported from, from the manufacturing facility to some central health facility, sure, there are still refrigerators there. They, they, get, they get shipped in bulk. But the farther they get from that, particularly if you're, getting to, if you're trying to take it to a village in western Kenya where there is no electricity whatsoever, or central India where there's no electricity, uh, how do you ensure that it actually stays between 2 and 8 degrees? That's a, that's a problem that hasn't been solved. In fact, the way it's done right now is people more or less take ice packs 
yeah. and there is no control over the temperature there. Right? So you have no idea whether it's freezing, whether it's gone over 8 degrees. You, sort of, you do that, and you, you get a, an empirical sense for how long you have. And once the ice melts, it's done. So um, the very specific prototype that, that our team is working on right now is, is um, and we hope to have this in a few months, um, actually you know, uh, uh, the, the ultimate test is actually to leave it on the rooftop of Building 90 for a week. That would be a good test, yes. Uh, so, Jonathan, I hope I'm not overpromising, but <laughs> see if it can stay between 2 and 8 degrees centigrade. If we do that, for that type of price, for that weight for solar, it'll be the first time it's been done. Well, I want to go back. When, when you looked at the lab to analyze what type of research that was already going on here might be applicable, what were the criteria you were using to make that judgment, let's say 25%? What were you looking for? Um, it's... So... so in a couple of things. So first of all, if, if you step back and think of what the problems are, everything from energy access to things like refrigeration to things like the capabilities to make devices for, for um, medical uses, for instance, you know, it is less going through the entire inventory and saying yes, no, yes, no. It's really looking at more, more the capabilities of the various divisions and departments and getting a sense for whether or not they worked on things that are relevant. I'll give you another example. Um, our um, engineering division, um, uh, Alex Rati and, and team, they've been working, they, they did a project a couple of years back on detecting unexploded ordinances. Essentially, right. shells that have you know, been, this was with the U.S. military uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a test range. So there are lots of these shells that haven't exploded. So they built a really interesting technology to detect those things. Now, that was explicitly for U.S. use for this, this, this type of a firing range. Now, transport yourself to Afghanistan, where there are thousands and thousands of landmines. Can this technology be used for that? Don't know yet. We think it, it could be interesting. But if it, if it, if it uh, is transferable, think of how much land it, it makes available. Now, granted, you know, nowadays, particularly after the landmine ban, it's not like a whole lot of people die because of landmines. It's, it's a couple thousand a year. But it's just that the land gets rendered useless. Right. And so if we can transfer that technology, so that's the, those are the types of questions we asked, is a combination of individual projects and uh, departmental and divisional capabilities to do things. Was this something distinctive about Berkeley Lab that you might not find elsewhere? Um, absolutely. Now... You know, I shamelessly say that this is probably the world's single largest repository of research, advanced research that's relevant to developing country needs. Simply because if you compare this to other large research institutions, if it's an academic university, for instance, um, and you know, being a part-time academic myself, this is this is not uh, a slight on academic institutions at all. It's just that um, the typical faculty member has in her or his mind. A, 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 a set of solutions that they've been working on for years. Right. And that's the hammer with which they want to solve problems, as opposed to, uh, you know, I, I find that scientists here are informed but not necessarily wedded to a particular approach, willing to experiment. So, so it's scientists for hire, which, and that doesn't happen anywhere else. Okay, good to know. Uh, so breakthrough technologies are obviously one of the things that Light is looking at. What are the other objectives? Maybe uh, I believe I had read someplace about um, the fact that the, the role of those in the developing world themselves who often don't have a voice, often they're just the recipients of something. But there's a demand-driven analysis that's going on as well. Absolutely. There is no shortage of amazing technologies that are sitting on the shelf. The reason they sit on the shelf is simply that they don't take into account the voice of the user, and equally importantly, the voice of the repair guy. Right? Yeah. So, so you have these things that get shipped that, you know, with, with great fanfare, some of them are, are launched, and a few years later, they are either broken, or after the, after the initial financial subsidy is over, nobody can afford them anymore. So the way we believe this problem needs to be solved um, is twofold. First of all, be extremely, as you said, demand-driven in, in our analysis. And what that means is the following. In a number of countries in which we're focusing uh, on, so take Bangladesh, for instance, mm -hmm. 
there's an organization called BRAC, which um, B-R-A-C, and it's it's it has stood for different things over time. Most recently, it stood for the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, and BRAC is probably more responsible for. You know, Bangladesh is a poor country still, but a lot better off than than they were uh, a few decades back. And BRAC is probably more responsible for lifting Bangladesh out of absolute destitution and starvation than any than the government even. And we will be working very closely with BRAC to, uh, to figure out: are the do the farmers really care about refrigerators? Right? Do yes, they? Do they? We believe they do, in some countries more than others, right? But in Bangladesh, they might not. Reason being, Bangladesh is a very dense country. And if it's densely populated, chances are you're not as far away from the market, which means you don't, your products don't have to live as long. Whereas if you, take, if you take Kenya, absolutely, the need is there, right? So point being that the design parameters, the needs will be very different in Bangladesh than they will be in Kenya. And so we would work very closely with, with BRAC to, to see if they need these things how they would be used, and, and then you know, do the design there. The product design would actually be done there and, um, and built as close to there as possible. So you're creating a robust business model locally. Yes, that's part B, uh, yeah. is, is the business model. So first of all, you have to make something that's useful. Once it's, and then what that means is low cost, something that's customized to the users, something that's robust, meaning that, that if, if it shouldn't break down. Um, something that's typically not dependent on, on AC electricity. And as we saw, mm-hmm. even in India, the emerging power, the last few days, you know, more than half the country has been living without power. Um, um, and, and even if we build that perfect thing, it's possible that it won't be used. And the reason might be that the business model doesn't exist. The business model consists of everything from pricing to who's going to be distributing it. Who's go- will somebody make money off of it? Because if, if someone doesn't make money, who's got the incentive to make right. sure it actually continues to work? Who's going to repair it once it breaks down? So all of those things have to be in place before anything can succeed. And we won't start working on anything unless we're reasonably assured that that will happen. So is the Darfur stove a good example of this? The Darfur stove is a very good example, and it is one of the most successful cook stoves. Now, what is challenging about the Darfur context is that these are internally displaced people, refugees essentially within their own borders. They have no money. Right? So uh, it simply doesn't make sense to sell there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a different business model. On the other hand, that same, that same stove with some changes could be used in a different context where the customers could be paying for it. So that notwithstanding, it has, there are, I think, 20, 25,000 stoves that have been deployed, which is probably one of the most effective, most successful stoves. And aren't they being manufactured as well, actually, or assembled exactly. in the camp? So we're exactly. creating a business yeah. and actually within the camp itself. Yeah, and um, Ashok Gadgil, um, who um, is a co-founder of, of Light, and, and uh, the creator of the, the, the Darfur cook stove. Um, the way he designed this is uh, all the experimentation was done here. But then there's a, there's a plant in India that actually cuts the metal, and then it's assembled in Darfur. And here's the, here are the types of things that have to go into it. There are no screws, only rivets. Reason being, the typical Darfur refugee does not have a screwdriver. So if a screw or a bolt comes off, it won't work. Right? Wow. So they have to go to that level of detail. It's not just the simulations. It's not just the initial prototype design, but really you know, walking a mile in the shoes of the user. So you said earlier that uh, light has only been in existence for about four months. That's correct. Well, I'm sure we all can come up with the names of organizations who've been in existence for decades who work in the same space mm-hmm. in the developing world, solutions, distributing, deploying devices, whatever. So what makes you certain that you will succeed where perhaps they have not? Um, is there any special formula here? Is it the objectives that you've stated? Have we learned from other people's mistakes? Well, first of all, it'll definitely take more than one organization. And there are examples of organizations that have done well. The challenge we're taking on is somewhat different from what I believe other, other organizations have taken on. Um, and it's not just about the technologies. It's not just about producing stuff. Uh, part of our mandate is to shape the global agenda on how we think about scientific and technological breakthroughs. It sounds very ambitious. 
um, and we'll come back to why I believe we'll succeed. Uh, the reason, first of all, there's a need for a very coherent and ambitious agenda is simply that there is no shortage of, there are a thousand technologies that are out there that are not making the difference. Classic example being water purification. So there are, you could, there are probably a hundred water, purific- water purifiers. Still, a million and a half kids die every year. And um, so, why, so why is that? I mean, there's so many out there. Yeah. Clearly, somebody yes. somewhere has to figure yeah. out that there's one that's working there. Are none of them working? Are, well, you- so I, um, it, this particular problem has been keeping me up nights for a long time. And earlier this year, I was traveling. I went to a few countries in, in, in South Asia and in Africa, and I was following some street kids. Um, initially, I was chasing them because, because they tried to steal something from me, but then it ended up being a, <laughs> a nice little experiment. Um, so these kids, many of them actually had clean drinking water at home because their, their mothers boiled the water or something. Right? But then they went outside and played in dirty water. Right? In fact... Um, you know, the, the first group of kids was playing cricket. Right, the ball, the ball fell into um, an extraordinarily dirty, filthy. I mean, you, you can't even call it a river. Yeah. Right? it's it's just a flo- there's there is all sorts of stuff floating there. And it's been floating there for decades. So they go in, you know, wade in, pick up the pick up the ball, and continue playing. So they wipe their hands, and then they eat something with those hands. Right. So it is not the access to drinking water, but rather the presence of all these contaminants that, is, that they're surrounded by. And so... So if I may stop yeah. you. So now that's, that's a huge problem. That's not uh, an individual or a small village with a water purification system mm-hmm. that portable. That seems to be a big government problem. So how does... Yeah. So now um, we haven't... So we're actually in the process of, of thinking about this. But if I were to venture a guess, here's how I would think about it, which is... The larger water and sanitation problem uh, will have multiple aspects to it. And if you think of waste, remember one of the things I mentioned is that this is stuff that accumulates over decades. Um, I used to live in Chicago, and one of the one of the stories that everybody hears about Chicago is how the Chicago River was it was full of toxic waste, human waste certainly. And then there was this one moment where it had to, one, one year where it had to be dredged out. Point being that if you've got trash and waste accumulating for decades, you can build the toilet, the perfect toilet that won't keep adding contaminants to it, but you still have to get rid of that. Right. And, and after you get rid of it, you have to make sure it doesn't keep accumulating. So there, are absol- there absolutely are structural things that have to be done, like maybe a one-time massive cleanup. Whether the governments are up for it or not is a different question. But there is also a need for these technologies that will make sure that the pollutants don't keep getting added to the environment. If you just do one without the other, it doesn't solve the problem. So the larger point being that every breakthrough will have dependencies for success, for impact. And our job... Part of our job is to understand those dependencies before the problems can be solved. Because the situation to avoid is, is this, this quote that um, I, I haven't heard it used uh, recently here, but uh, congratulations, the surgery is a success, but the patient is dead. Right. So what do, uh, what do organizations get wrong when they go into some developing countries with technologies? Um, We've talked about something, but I'd like to zero in on more specifics. Yeah. Uh, this may be my personal bias because of where I grew up, but this is not about charity. I mean, the moment you have a charity hat on, you're missing the whole point. These are phenomenally complicated problems to be solved. So we need to replace the charity problem with the, problem with the, problem, uh, the, the charity hat with the problem-solving hat. And... Um, what that means is, you know, to specifically answer your question, I think far too many organizations have, have used the charity model. Right. Oh, we'll save those poor people. It's not about that. These are phenomenally important problems of, of huge global significance that have to be solved. And what that means is we have to bring the best minds to the problem, which comes back to why I believe this is a great place to be thinking about them. 
and there have to be partnerships, obviously, with other organizations. So you mentioned uh, the vaccine refrigeration, uh, refrigeration for agriculture, cookstoves. So are you looking for a f- to concentrate on a few breakthrough technologies first before tackling the bigger problems? Um, so the way we're approaching this is uh, it's, it's a two-part model. First is there are a few things that we know we can, we can start doing, like the refrigerators. Um, in parallel, we are doing, we are conducting this exercise to identify the 50 to 75, I mentioned this earlier, the most important um, scientific technological breakthroughs that are required. Once we identify them, the carrot we have is that USAID has said they will use that for their funding mandate. That's it's, it's, um, it's wonderful for us because it, it gives us a chance to shape the global agenda, as I said, USAID being one of the largest. So is this going to be Sashi working on his own to develop these 50? Not at or? all, not at all. So first of all, um, um, we have a team in, in that should acknowledge them. So they, m- many of them are here, uh, Roger Satri, Reshma Singh, Zach Friedman, Lina Vashi, um, Laura Wong, our interns, um, Tarun Aurelian, um, Aman, um, Ashok. So we, we, have, uh, we have a large team working on this. In addition to that, uh, the, the way we think about this problem is we'll do our research and come up with early hypotheses, but then we actually interview a couple hundred of the leading thinkers in the space. We'll, then, we'll have them beat it up. We'll then actually do an event here um, where we'll, we'll you know, maybe it's a couple of days of rolling up our sleeves and thinking about is this the right approach, is there any point building this technology if the deployment challenges are overwhelming? Right? So, so we cannot do this. There's, there's very little of consequence we can do in isolation, including this. So are you concentrating on a particular part of the world when you look at these problems? Well, the, the concentration of poverty is in sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. Now, granted, that's still a, a very large part of the world. Um, what we'll do is, because we're explicitly thinking about the downstream deployment, we'll engage in countries where we believe we have that access. So uh, in South Asia, we happen to have access to the three big countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. In Kenya, there are a few countries where we're, we're in early conversations, uh, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Liberia, Kenya. Um, Mostly because you know we we happen to know individuals and happen to have access to institutions that that can give us um, the chance to do large scale pilots that can that can open doors for us. Are there some common elements that you already know? Simplicity, price. That, that are going to help guarantee success of technologies as you seek to deploy them in Oh, there are countries. no guarantees of success. Okay, right? no guarantees. There, there will undoubtedly be many failures. Right? We just have to learn from them. But are there some that give you a greater odds for success? Yes, absolutely. rephrase the question. Absolutely. And they would be? Yeah. And they would be, again, going back to some of the things we talked about, making sure that the downstream business partners are fully engaged in this, making sure that... Um, Someone's going to benefit from this, and it's not just the, the quote-unquote intended beneficiaries of the, of the uh, downstream. Um, making sure that we're taking into account the ecosystem that will be required to maintain this, to, 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 uh, to build and maintain this. And it goes back to the, the product characteristics that you mentioned, which is low cost, robust, easy to maintain, um, easy to use, lightweight, and not relying on electricity, for instance, or, or at least uh, AC electricity. Okay. So I know you were born in India. Uh, do you feel a special sense of responsibility in this work? Um, well, we're all global citizens, right? And it's not... Um, I, I don't think I feel a sense of responsibility that's different from a lot of people. But um, it seems like we don't have the... Uh, I'll use some strong language here. When a third of our food is being wasted and millions of people are starving to death, we can't just simply accept that. We can't call ourselves a, a civilized society and watch these things happen on TV. So uh, we all have a responsibility, and, and uh, many of us do our part in that. Were there any particular anecdotes or formative moments in your childhood which you think sort of influenced you in the direction you ultimately took with your career? Um, sure. There, there are a couple of moments that, that, that uh, come to mind. 
um, I grew up in Calcutta, and you know, poverty is everywhere there. So much so that you take it for granted. You don't think of it as extraordinary. You think of that as, as the default. And frankly, as a teenager, no, nothing about that seemed to strike me as, as remarkable. Um, I, uh, as, as, I, as soon as I finished high school, um, I um, came to the States to, to study for college. And I remember the, the last day as I was um, driving, my father was dropping me off at, at the airport in New Delhi. And um, there's a scene that, uh, unremarkable in every way, but not a day goes by when I don't, and I don't uh, think about that. Um, it was a, you know, a typical run-of-the-mill five-story, six-story urban building. There was a kid, a five- or six-year-old kid, who was you know, pouring a glass of milk out of the balcony. And, you know, absent-mannedly, I was just looking at the kid and sort of watching the, the drops of milk trickle down the railing. And um, it, it wasn't... I wasn't deliberately following, just absent-mannedly following. And then the thing I noticed is there were some street kids on the ground who were trying to catch it with their mouth. And uh, here I was, you know, um, a child of a middle-class family having the chance to study in the U.S. And a few feet away were these kids who were so hungry, so starved of what you think every child in the world deserves, milk, that they had to drink this milk that was uh, running off of the walls of, of a building. And uh, I, mean, I, I, I don't, and I was, again, I, I was a very unremarkable teenager, but that moment stuck in my mind. What is, you know, the, the phrase that came to my mind then is, number one, as unremarkable as my circumstances were, I still live a very privileged life. With privilege comes responsibility. What do I do with the chance I've been given? And the chance you were given was to fly from Calcutta to Indiana to attend a Mennonite college. How did that go? Oh, um, yeah. So uh, I, you know, uh, I went to a, a Goshen College in Indiana, which is a small, a, t- a tiny college. And I like to joke that even the alumni haven't heard of it. <laughs> it's. Um, it's a conservative Christian college, and I, you know, the way I like to describe myself is uh, I'm so far from being religious that I'll go to hell in every religion. <laughs> um, but there's something remarkable about the college, which is that, you know, in those of you who know the Mennonite, of the Mennonite faith, it is, it is deeply rooted in social service. So every American student who goes to, to Goshen College, they have to spend a semester doing social work in a developing country. And what I saw every day was, was people wrestling with this notion of, of religion and service. Now, religion has become politicized now in every way, in this country, around the, wo- around the world. But I saw how people are motivated by their faith and their beliefs to really try and make a big difference. So, so many of my classmates now are in the developing world dedicating their lives to, trying, uh, to solving these problems. Um, and that left an impression. I, I had not really? met a whole community of people actually trying to do this. So are you now a member of the Goshen College Alumni Association? Well, you know, because I graduated. Okay, you are. You know, at least. Okay, I have some other additional questions, but I'd like to um, maybe if if those in the audience who do have a question, you know, you want to ask, and if you could raise your hand, and we can have the... uh, my colleagues sort of move in your direction. Uh, I don't want to lose this one point, which I failed to ask you earlier, which is, again, so much of the flow of uh, technology, we think of us, even culturally sensitive, going to the developing world. But is there something that the people in the developing world can teach us about sustainability, about, about other issues, that we may be able to learn from them instead of us, this one-way flow that yeah, seems yeah, I mean, to be it's, uh, it's, um, it's a great question. Um, when I grew up in Calcutta, you know, we um, we didn't have plastic bags. What they were, we, we, there was this, this entire this cottage industry of people who would come and buy newspapers from you by the by by weight, and obviously, you know, they couldn't afford much, but they actually bought newspapers from from the people who who, who bought them for news reading. 
they would then convert those newspapers into, into shopping bags. And so there was absolutely no waste. The, the, there, was no, there were no plastic cups. Um, we would have, and this is a very Calcutta thing, uh, another cottage industry of people who would go to the banks of the Hooghly River and, and they would make these clay pots. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you, if you got a cup of tea from, from somewhere, you just got it in, in that clay cup, you drank it, and you tossed it. And granted, that was creating trash, but in a few days, the rain would just wash it away and it was gone, back where it came from. So um, now, sadly... It seems like India has picked up some of the bad habits of, of the developed world. There's plastic everywhere. Yeah. I was in, uh, it's a, a slight segue. I was in Darfur um, a, little, a little over a year back, and it's a desolate, desolate place. And there's one, one part of Darfur where, you know, because it, was, it had uh, seen a lot of the, the war, and you, the only things you could see there were, uh, you know, the odd thorny tree, the odd, um, you know, blown up um, military vehicle, and then there was this this fence that seemed surreal, just out of nowhere, this, this barbed wire fence. It had thousands of plastic bags, because, you know, because there's nothing anywhere, right? So the wind the would blow takes that, and they just get stuck on the fence, and it seemed like a, you know... A bad art installation. Exactly, exactly. Okay, a question from the audience. Yes, uh, the director of the laboratory, I, I believe, initially funded this institute. Uh, first question is, what are you doing to garner additional funds, either grants, institutionally or otherwise? And the second part is, uh, as Jeff indicated, alluded to, there's a lot of other federal or, or non-federal organizations trying to do this as well. What is your partnership relationship with, say, State Department, uh, the United Nations uh, Industrial Development Group, even the World Health Organization? Since this is such small research, how do you make the inroads to convince them to partner with you and you leverage their funding, which is much larger? Great questions. Um, the the lab directorate has been very generous in giving us some seed funding, but one of the one of the things that I've been working on very heavily is actually engaging the the external ecosystem funders. There are a number of them quite interested, and these range I won't name names, but the you know in in the international development space, the typical the, the usual suspects, uh, they see the value in this. They are quite excited about the prospects. And over the next few months, part of, part of our job is to convert that interest into, into funding. Which then brings us to the second question you asked is around partnerships. Uh, once again, the only path to success is to make sure we have a, a broad range of partners around the world. And in some cases, it will be the international institutions like the WHO and, and various UN agencies. So for instance, um, for, the, for the vaccine refrigerator, it turns out that we'd have to work closely with WHO to make sure it actually meets their standards. And it also turns out that UNICEF is one of the single largest buyers of, of vaccine refrigerators because they serve children's needs, and among, among the most important of children's needs is, is vaccines. So um, we will, in that particular context, work with them. But it's not just the international institutions. It'll be, it'll be national governments. It'll be small, uh, it'll be small for-profit companies, it'll be large multinational companies. So it will, ve- it will depend on the particular product, but, uh, but uh, part of our job, again, if we are to succeed, we have to figure out what the right ecosystem of partners is for any particular product and engage them very early in the process. And isn't the plan uh, for the spring event when you've identified the technologies to bring some of these agencies and foundations Absolutely. here for conversations? But you're going to be doing having to do a lot of fundraising, I'm imagining. Absolutely. That's the, both the, 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 uh, the good and the bad part of the job is fundraising. Okay. Do we have another question from the audience? Yeah, two questions. One, <clears throat> on the refrigerator, um, it, it seems like uh, there would be a huge local market for uh, an ice chest for a little more cost than an ice chest that's a refrigerator. I yeah. mean, I'm thinking college dorms and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, why wouldn't we start with the local market? But the, probably the second and more important question is back to the point of what do we have to learn. Um, 
you know, I did a lot of work in rural uh, villages in Mexico, and I mean, one of the clear indicators is how happy you can be with nothing. And, and I think we have a lot to learn from that. And, and you know, I know Bhutan is trying to do that in more of a, of a scientific way, almost perhaps too scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on, on, on that aspect, that do we really need, do we really need these gadgets uh, to lead a happy life? Um, great questions. Um, so the first one's easier to answer. Uh, <laughs> they, for every product... There will be, a, uh, for many of the products, there will be an interesting business model which requires cross-subsidization in the, in the business model itself. So, um, for instance, so to take, take us, uh, I would love a solar-powered lightweight refrigerator that, can, that I can take when I go camping or something. Um, and absolutely, we're, 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 we're part of the partnership process, actually possibly working with, with uh, outdoor companies here to see if there's a, a fit there. Uh, and it gets more interesting than that as well. Right? So there could be products for the middle class in the country, like India, which gives you a chance to substantially scale up and then use some of that to amortize your capital costs to, to figure out a lower, a lower cost version of the same product. Um, do we need stuff to be happy? No. But um, you know, part of the, you know, the, the, trip, the um, exercise I mentioned earlier this year when I was walking through the slums, um, one of the questions I asked is, what do you need? What, would you, what do you want? And um, what's a guess? If you were to guess, what, what was the single most frequently wanted, desired product? A television. And, you know, far be it for me to judge, because Lord knows and I, we, we live in privilege. Um, you know, I am a big believer in the Maslow hierarchy which is, in the human condition is such that we'll never stop needing stuff. And um, there was a time when, when, you know, going back to the history of countries like India and Bangladesh, where this level of progress seemed out of reach and seemed like something that the country would be happy with. But people need more, people want more, countries want more, and, you know, I'm not wise enough to judge. That's back to the point of what do we have to learn I mean, I went to China in 82, mm-hmm. and, and that was exactly where they were 30 years ago, yeah. which was everybody was striving for a television. It was about a two years' worth yeah. of a salary. And then they got their television, then they got the refrigerator, yeah. and now they're getting their cars. And not small cars. They're, only, they're driving you know, SUVs and such. And, and the, the major cities are just so opulent. So, I mean, yeah. what did we teach? How did we help the Chinese you know, achieve you know, happiness? And, I mean, we're... Are we going in the right direction? Again, back to do we have something to learn from those that have nothing uh, compared to those that are striving to, to equal Western values and, and opulence? Well, well if I may interject one thing here, what we haven't talked about is some of these technologies are aimed at, we have climate change conditions that these countries are yeah. struggling with. Mm-hmm. So it's, in some cases, it's not giving them something to make, make their lives better. It's just helping them continue to survive in the locations where they are. Correct? Absolutely. I mean, happiness is the eternal human quest, right? And, and, and uh, I don't know of a single society that's actually achieved that. Maybe the Scandinavians have. Um, <laughs> or not. Um, but there are, you know, there are undoubtedly many very severe needs, right? So I'm fine saying we have no interest in producing televisions, but kids should not have to die because the water is dirty, right? Women shouldn't have to die when they're giving birth. So before we even get to products that are for entertainment or, you know, by some reasonable measures, nice to have, there are a whole bunch of must-haves, and that's where our focus will be. Okay, before we take another question, I don't want Sashi to leave without you all understanding that in keeping with the spirit of the moment, we do have a former Olympian here. Um, this was, uh, you competed on the uh, Indian Olympic team in rowing, did you not? The Indian Olympic team uh, is the moral equivalent of the Jamaican bobsled team, except... Yeah. <laughs> but please except know no that we have a real it. Olympian here. Except no one made a movie about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 not only was I... Just to put this in perspective, not only was I on the Indian team, I was the Indian team for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, uh... Okay, another question. Uh, does the Institute use volunteers for any of its projects? And if so, what skill sets do you need? Absolutely. Um, you know, we're, 
we're, we're figuring out our, our structure going forward, but as we, our portfolio of projects grows, we need people to, to help build these things. And um, there are, so for instance, there are a number of scientists here who are retiring or have retired who are, who are very happy to volunteer their time. Even, even current staff, you know, we'll be happy to take, uh, take the time. And you know, the, the skill sets will range from, if, if someone, someone really understands the development context and can share, uh, share some perspectives through some brainstorming sessions, that's wonderful. If they can roll their sleeves up and build stuff, that's even better. Another question from the audience? Yes. Um, just a question on in environmental energy technologies division. There's an urban systems and or division or reorganization, and just a question of how are you going to interface with the whole question of cities and development of the cities and the infrastructure in the cities. The problems you were talking about were not just the widgets that could be used in a single house, but the whole city and the urban structure? Great, great, great question. One of the biggest challenges that the world will face over the next 20, 30 years is um, urban poverty. As things stand, only about 15% of the people in developing countries live in cities. That, That will dramatically change. And that will put a burden on cities that we just have not seen. And uh, it will, if not appropriately addressed, it will lead to not just concentration, large concentration of poverty, but all sorts of social ills that, again, we just haven't had to deal with. And frankly, there isn't a single economic model for how to deal with that. And just take a couple of minutes to discuss that economic model. Historically, economists have thought of urban poverty as, as a trickle-down issue. The urban poor serve the urban middle class. Or they build things for either export or for, the, again, the urban middle class. Um, but that assumes a certain population pyramid. Now, as more and more poor people migrate to the cities, that the bottom of the pyramid gets so big that there simply enough, enough, isn't enough money at the top to trickle down. And, um, and so we believe that in the absence of a middle-class consuming market, there'll have to be a self-sustaining economy among the poor. So if you think of these extremely inexpensive things that we're, we're hoping to start producing, there'll be an ecosystem around that. Right? Someone has to maintain that. These products will hopefully also unleash some of the productive capacity of the poor so they don't have to spend all their time doing things manually, but can actually free up their time. And if time is the only resource they have, they can do other things with that time. Now, the flip side of that question is now what about the structural issues? Um, I think for the first time, uh, city governments and, and national governments, in, particularly in India and China, are starting to take this seriously. So right now, um, I was actually on the phone with some friends in, in India last night talking about this, this very issue. There is a move to require, in, in the city of Hyderabad, for instance, in, in southern India, there's a move to require every building of, 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 a, of a particular size to have rainwater capture, a, a large tank for capturing rainwater underneath the building. So, so, it, so technology itself won't solve many of these problems. They require significant policy changes. The good news is that uh, the large countries where these problems are starting to rear the head seem to be taking the policy question seriously. Uh, there, is a, there is the open question of whether or not the governance mechanisms and the governance capabilities exist to follow through on the policy changes. But without question, your point is, is extremely important, which is that um, urban development, urban poverty will be a, an important problem that we need to keep an eye on. How have some of these problems been worsened by climate change? Um, interestingly, the, so if you think of, of the two sides of climate change, is the mitigation side, which is what the developed and consuming countries need to deal with, and then the, the adaptation side, the countries that have to put up with the, 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 the negative effects of climate change. The way they've manifested themselves, three or four ways. So if the Maldives, for instance, is a developing country with a sea level, it's a, it's a bunch of islands, small islands. The sea level is rising, so land is disappearing. Um, um, 
then there are, because of severe weather patterns, floods and droughts are increasing. Um, and as a result of that, things it, it's, it's, it's having an interesting impact, interesting yet unpredictable impact on, on the flow of diseases, malaria and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And then um, water tables are going away. Um, if, if you have drought and the water tables go down, you have famine. Um, one of the things that's happening in India is, um, in, in, Western, in uh, eastern India, is because the water tables are going down. Uh, the water is now at a, a, a place where this, the, the, the rock formation is such that there is naturally occurring arsenic in the water. Ah. And our lab's actually working on a, on a very important uh, project, Ashok and Susan Addy, who is here. Um, and that is, a, is the single largest case of mass poisoning in the world, arsenic in the, in the water systems. Um, so it's famine, it's, it's pollution, it's the spread of disease, it's floods, it's um, disappearing land. And adapting to that is not easy. Any other questions from the audience? Yes, we have one here. So I was wondering about, um, all of this sounds wonderful, and obviously you have a very strong, powerful presence and presentation. I was wondering about the personality component to that as far as sustainability of your own program goes. You know, in other words, uh, are you somehow um, harvesting your own energy and intelligent design in a way so that if you somehow, for whatever reason, were not in charge of it, it would still continue? Uh, it's, it's a great question. I'm a big believer in the strength of the institution. And the best way to make sure an institution is stronger is strong is to hire people who are smarter and more talented than, than you. And, and I've been very lucky in the people I've been able to recruit for the team. Um, and, uh, you know, I've... It, it irritates me to no end to have um, NGOs in particular be built on the personality of the founder. Right? Because it ends up being about the hero that the founder is, as opposed to the strength of the institutions and the problems of the institutions solving. So, um, absolutely right. That if you know, institutions will fail if they're dependent on one, it's a, it's 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 the in any successful, effective process, you have to build in redundancy. Get hit by a car, somebody else has to be able to take over very soon. So, um, absolutely, there is no question that that uh, the institution will have to be strong. There will have to be bench strength. It's early; it's four months into this, and uh, already I'm, I'm sure that there, you know, half the team could, in fact, do a much better job than I am. <laughs> well, we are at the end of the hour. I'd like you to thank Sashi for joining us today and for attending this final of our summer series conversations. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.